0: You are back with The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. State lawmakers are getting straight to business following the opening of the legislature this morning. The traditional open house drawing crowds with festive music and food isn't happening at the state capitol. That's where HBR's reporter Ryan Finerty is. Good morning, Ryan. Good morning, Catherine. So set the scene. What's it like down there?
1: Well, this is a very different scene than in years past for anyone who has been to the Capitol on opening day. And most years, it's very festive, the The rotunda area on the bottom floor of the Capitol, which is open air. Uh, it has lots of people, hundreds of people, if not more, uh, jammed in. There's usually different groups presenting and doing cultural practice or trying to get the word out about what issues they're going to be lobbying on in the coming sessions. Lawmakers also open their offices to... Members of the public or anyone who wants to come by, there's usually food available and uh, it's a very communal and festive atmosphere. That's very different from what we're seeing today. The Capitol is locked off. You can still walk up to the building and walk around the grounds, but there are barriers in place blocking the entrances with signs that say government property, no trespassing. There's a heavy police presence, state sheriffs, and Honolulu Police Department all around. The grounds of the Capitol, and access has been restricted. Members of the public are not allowed into the Capitol. That started earlier, months ago, as part of COVID-19 precautions, but was stepped up in the wake of the riot at the U.S. Capitol. The one very obvious difference, other than the barriers this year, is that the, the grounds of the Capitol have been covered almost every square inch with miniature Hawaii state flags. Several Native Hawaiian cultural groups said they came out early this morning and started putting those in place. And it really does make for a, a very striking scene, seeing all the flags covering the grass around the Capitol. So it, it's not quite the, the festive atmosphere we're used to, but it is still striking uh, in its own way.
0: And you've been talking to lawmakers down there. Uh, what are they telling you about, you know, getting to the people's work?
1: They're still planning on moving forward with the session, uh, as would normally be the case. It will be look very differently this year because the capitol is closed to members of the public so much of the work will be conducted remotely but uh, lawmakers are still in the capitol building their staffs are in the capitol building they're trying to do as much as they can in person but some meetings will be held remotely Uh, some will be a mix with maybe a committee chair in person and other members in their offices or even uh, outside the capitol but they fully plan on conducting the people's business as usual and uh, the the one major change from last year because that's kind of how things functioned last year is that members of the public will be able to testify remotely live uh, over zoom this year that's a new feature that's being rolled out last year it was restricted to written testimony only which uh, garnered a lot of criticism from transparency advocates so this year Anyone, whether expert witnesses or interest groups or just members of of the general public want to weigh in on a proposed piece of legislation while it's being debated and reviewed, there will be a way to do that remotely, as has been the case at county councils for quite a while now.
0: Okay, and I know they have been uh, working to try and uh, boost their uh, fiber going into the building so that hopefully they won't have so many uh, problems uh, technically.
1: Yeah, that remains to be seen. I know some of the the meetings that I've sat in on remotely uh, already because there have been meetings happening throughout the month leading up to opening day. Uh, there have been connectivity issues as anyone who's used zoom or uh, or Skype or Webex has has probably experienced lags, distortion, that kind of thing. So that's that's probably going to be an inevitability. This has been a big expansion of remote streaming in years past. We can probably expect there to be a few kinks uh, as it's rolled
0: out. All right. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Ryan. We know it's not easy covering uh, the legislative work remotely, but uh, uh, thanks for your help today. Stay safe and stay dry. Thanks,
1: Catherine. You too.
0: We've been talking to Ryan Finnerty, who was reporting down there at the state capitol this morning. Today's Reality Check has a story about the start of this legislative session, and it's not off to a good one for the Legislative Auditor's Office. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Stuart Yurton on the line today. Good morning.
2: Good morning, Catherine.
0: So all the time that I've been a reporter here in town, I can't recall that we've had an audit of the auditor. I don't know. You used to work in that office. Do you recall anything like this?
2: Um, uh, yes, I, I worked there um Uh, But, no, there's never been anything where the legislature has really uh, had this kind of uh, working group to really uh, look at the auditor in this way that that I've seen.
0: And so what's prompting this?
2: Well, uh, House Speaker Scott Psyche um, said that he's concerned about a couple of things, and, and some of this is mentioned in, in this, today's story. Um, I spoke to him again today, and, and he brought up another point. But uh, a couple of things. One, he's, he's, the Speaker is not happy with the way um, the, Les Condo is running the office. He said that he's running it in a litigious manner uh, that's really not uh, appropriate for, for the auditor Uh, He also said that part of the scope of this inquiry is to figure out whether the legislature can rely on the auditor's work. Uh, He's concerned that some things might just be not good or material or or accurate or something.
0: And this is information that they use to make decisions about uh, bills that they're considering.
2: Right. Uh, bills, funding of agencies, how things are operating. You know, This is kind of the um, accountability branch of the legislature or accountability office. It's the state equivalent of the general accountability office or the GAO of Congress. So, yeah, this is um, it's sometimes called the legislative auditor, and it really goes in and assesses the executive branch and sees, well, how well are they actually doing things? It's not just about money. It's they're looking at performance often. And um, really, trying to figure out, are they doing their job?
0: Yeah, they they do management audits as well, and and the one audit recently was the one of the Office of Wine Affairs uh, that kind of um, blew up because <laughs> they did. According to Les, right, they didn't get info they needed.
2: Right, and this is this is essentially caused just a delay or a complete uh, postponement or suspension of that audit. And the legislature made the funding for for Office of Hawaiian Affairs uh, contingent on the uh, on the audit being done. Well, if there's no audit, then OHA doesn't get its money, and it's creating uh, a bit of a problem.
0: Yeah, there's tension there. So, uh, if I recall, the the court sided with OHA, uh, and so yeah. So so within what happens with this audit?
2: Well, uh, it seems like. Arguably, uh, the office of the auditor could uh, go ahead with an audit and scope out uh, the portion of material that they can't get or have the audit reflect that. But again, this is the kind of thing that they have a city auditor, a former city auditor is going to look at this. And and he's in a much better position, I think, to assess the situation uh, than I am or really just about anybody else. Um, He can look at audit standards and say, well, can they do this? Uh, You know, the other thing that uh, Speaker Psyche uh, mentioned was a a report the office did on special funds available for the legislature um, to to use during this uh, time where there's not not a lot of state money, extra state money floating around. And uh, the quote from the speaker was, that report was completely useless. Uh, That's just what he told me. He said information was simply wrong in it and they can't uh, use it.
0: So could that be grounds for removing the auditor?
2: Well, the Speaker says uh, yes, um, that if if for cause, all the Constitution says is for cause, uh, the legislature can have a joint session and uh, with a two-thirds majority vote could remove the auditor
0: yeah well I know les condo was previously with the state ethics commission and uh you know he pretty much towed the line on you know what lawmakers couldn't couldn't do uh or couldn't accept as far as gifts and uh uh so that didn't make him popular with a lot of lawmakers either
2: well he was very much a straight arrow and again we'll we'll see how this shakes out but uh they have three very uh accomplished uh Former public servants on this uh, working group, and we'll see what happens.
0: All right. Well, thanks so much, Stuart. So much,
2: Stuart. Thank you, Catherine.
0: And that was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's reality check. To read his story, visit civilbeat.org. This is the conversation on statewide member supported Hawaii Public Radio. Up next, your backyard quiz. <laughs>
3: i hau u Umulokai, u Umau, u muloga
0: In today's Backyard Quiz, a modern-day Renaissance man. He was an artist and historian whose work is seen on more than 400 canvases. Created on behalf of the Hawaii State Foundation on Culture and the Arts, the National Park Service, National Geographic magazine, and major book and magazine publishers. His creations have also appeared on seven United States postage stamps, as well as stamps for the Republic of the Marshall Islands, the Federated States of Micronesia, and French Polynesia. He was born in 1928, raised in Waipio Valley, Hilo, Hawaii, and Wisconsin. After service in the U.S. Navy, he studied at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago and at the University of Chicago. He's most associated with his home in South Kona, though, where he created some of his best work. Even if you can't easily remember his name, you have likely seen his paintings. And today we're looking for the name of this artist. Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. If you know the answer, the first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right.
4: Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which represents real estate businesses committed to strengthening communities statewide by supporting affordable housing, providing infrastructure, and creating jobs. Learn more at nareethawaii.com.
0: A big sigh of relief this morning as peace reigned over the nation's capital and the state capital this morning. Our political analyst Neil Milner joins us for the Long View. Good morning, Neil. Good morning, Catherine. So how are we going to heal these divisions?
5: Well, it's interesting that a piece that was written uh, obviously a couple months ago and appeared recently in Atlantic Magazine about the Mormons written by uh, McKay Coppins, who is a Practicing Mormon, a terrific political writer um, and a terrific writer generally, his article on the LDS and and their history and so on is a very useful way of thinking about some of these things about what you can learn from the Mormons uh, in regard to healing the kinds of issues we have. And I should add, that's not why Coppens wrote it, which makes it even more interesting. So if you think about what happened today, the, the, the typical kind of speeches that people thought were going to happen, the emphasis on unity, the emphasis on democracy, on mutual sacrifice, and so on. Um, and Coppens had said in the article, what holds the country together is this convictions along those kind of lines. So. Let's look at some of the things uh, about Mormons that uh, really are useful lessons. And I want to add a couple of things. First of all, I'm not Mormon. Secondly, it's not simply about theology. Religion is also about the social relationships that people establish. And what the Mormons have done really well, partly because of their history, is to build a kind of sense of community, and also to work outside their own community in very effective sorts of ways. So that's where we can start.
0: Yeah, and and they have changed, they have morphed, uh, you know, over the over the many decades, you know, over the years.
5: Oh yeah, well, I'm, you know. You remember what their history is like in the the 1830s, the governor of Missouri said they should all be exterminated, and of course uh, Joseph Smith had been murdered before that. And they had a reputation of being very different, very alien, very exotic in the worst kind of sense of the word, even though they were always very interested in being American. They have a reputation that developed over time as being sort of insular, white, and conformity, and it never really was that much the case what's and, and of course they' they're still morphing about things like uh, uh, blacks in the church and also uh, about gays and lesbians and transsexuals but here is the thing that really struck me about uh, the Mormons and uh, in along these lines is the way that they build their own identity yet reach out into the broader community that is there really is a kind of sense of not just a sense of community a sort of practicing way that they uh, that they do these kinds of things and I think one of the ways you can understand this and and learn some lessons is what McKay Coppen says about how uh, Mormon churches are organized they're organized in ways first of all you the the Mormon leadership assigns the church that you are going to um, you are going to have to worship in, the particular church. And as, as Coppen says, they're, they're gerrymandered to include a lot of diversity. Mm-hmm. And if you read his, uh, what his church was like, his worship church, now he's moved in the Bushwick section of Brooklyn, it's about as heterogeneous and about as non-Mormon looking in, as a structure as you're going to find. What The point that Coppin's is trying to make is how diverse um, that that the, the church settings are and the people in them are really much more diverse than others think. And at the same time, they have a strong sense of religious similarity and learning a lot about what it means to be a Mormon. Part of what it means to be a Mormon is to do community work and, and to be part of the broader community. That's the lesson that that's one of the lessons that you can learn about you know, about how they do this. Mormons have a tradition of being outsiders virtually everywhere except for Utah. And what Coppin says, and actually it's what Mitt Romney says too, if you grew up up being a Mormon in other places outside of Utah, maybe a few other places, you're definitely in the minority, and you're definitely seen as different. And you develop a set of practices about how you adjust to the broader world while at the same time maintaining your own identity.
0: I appreciated his honesty in his uh, article. Uh, you know, I know when, when folks think of the Mormons, you know, I think of them like the original preppers, right? Oh, yeah, you you yeah. store a year's food because you want to take care of your family so that you can go out and help your community.
5: Right. And I mean, if you saw the Book of Mormon, they all look yes. like preppers, basically. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, and, and I think it, it, that it obviously depends on on where you live, but as the Mormons have become so successful proselytizing they they've become much more diverse. But the point that I really think is important is that it's not just about diversity in the sense of having lots of people of different races and colors there it's It's a sense of applied practices to how you make this work in a broader community. And remember, the other thing to remember about the Mormons is that they tend to be conservative. Um, the Utah was for a long time, I'm not sure if it still is, was the uh, reddest state in the nation. But they're very different from evangelicals and very different from most other Republicans. They were the least Trump supporters of any, uh, any Republican group they were very pro-immigration. In fact, they confronted uh, uh, Trump with some policies, you know, um, in Utah and those kinds of lines. So you see little little things in there. So I, I guess I would suggest a couple things. Read the piece because it's really interesting. And to me, it's interesting not just about what you learn about the Mormons. It's also interesting because what you learn about. A good writing. It's also interesting as a as learning about a set of practices that seem to have uh, applicability to what we tend to call healing, which makes it sound kind of too kumbaya and not nuts and boltsy enough. And you get some, you know, you get some good ideas uh, from this. And and for sure, we can use all kinds of good ideas that we have now. It's as much about. Establishing your own integrity in what you believe while at the same time knowing how to organize yourself and others so that you're contributing to a broader community.
0: And, and it's interesting, too, you know, when you uh, read this article and you look at, you know, some of the decisions that, uh, let's say, Mitt Romney made, you know, yeah. uh, separating uh, himself from uh, the Trump administration on certain issues.
5: Yeah, uh, Coppens is really good on writing about Romney because he covered Romney in the presidential race uh, when Romney was the presidential candidate against Obama. And he would occasionally drive Romney nuts because Coppens knew about doctrine, and he would push Romney to to get him to say, well, why aren't you talking about that enough? And, you know, um, not to proselytize. But Romney said, look, I grew up in Massachusetts as a Mormon. There weren't many around, and so I learned how... You have to survive as a as a, uh, as a minority, and uh, and it taught me it, it taught me how to be courageous. It's kind of a self serving statement, but what he was talking about there is his willingness to stand up against Trump in, a, in the impeachment uh, process, when virtually no other Republicans did. And Coppins has a similar background. Where essentially, you, you, if you grow up trying to maintain a strong religious identity. But a minority religious identity, one of the ways you can do it is to cut yourself off from the broader community and there are religious groups that do a lot of that, but that's not how Coppens lived his life, and it's not how uh, it's, it's not what you can learn from from the Mormons about how to do it Coppens one of the funny things in the in the what Coppens said I don't know if you remember he he was pretty sure he wanted to go to, to Brigham Young uh, he was living he was also from the east coast, but he He told his counselor, his college counselor, he was also interested in Arizona State because he didn't want her to think that it was just about going where all those Mormons are. And some of that is kind of sad, but it's also funny, and it's very insightful about how you survive in a world of pluralism.
0: All right, well, thanks so much, Neil. We have been chatting with Neil Milner, retired professor of political science and contributing editor of our segment, The Long View.
4: Support for H.P.R. comes from Compassion and Choices, celebrating the second anniversary of the Our Care, Our Choice Act, allowing terminally ill adults to request a prescription for medical aid in dying. CompassionandChoices.org Hawaii.
2: H.P.R.'s Atherton concerts are back with a season of virtual performances. Join us Saturday, January 23rd, when we welcome Kailua Moon with their signature blend of traditional Hawaiian, pop, and Americana. Guitarist Danny Carvalho and singer Nani Edgar will share classic songs and new ones as well. It's an online show so you can join us from anywhere. Sign up at hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Bonnie Rice and the Rice Partnership Wealth Management.
0: Our talkback line is an opportunity for listeners to share their reaction to the conversations we hear and provide feedback on the topics we cover. One listener gave her thoughts on yesterday's show uh, commemorating the one-year anniversary of the Hibiscus Drive shooting.
3: Hi, uh, my name is Nancy. I live in, uh, in the area where the two officers died and heard the gunshots and saw the fire. And uh, yes, mental illness is is a bad thing, but we need to be careful and not um, uh, take it upon ourselves to um, harm people that are mentally ill. We need to leave it to the professionals, and if you see something uh, that a person is actively uh, doing that is harmful at all times, do call the police, but we should not try to uh, take it upon ourselves and belittle, or uh, harass the mentally ill. Thanks.
0: Bye-bye. Another listener shared her perspective on Nick Oakes, the founder of the Hawaii chapter of Proud Boys. We re-aired a 2018 interview with him on Monday the 11th and shared reaction from our listeners on the air last week. My name is Meryl, calling from the Big Island.
3: I appreciated what was just said. Sometimes to be informed is to be forearmed, you know. Whatever that man believes. Everybody has a right to their belief, but sometimes others need to know that type of thinking to protect themselves. they are not stupid people saying <laughs> that. But I'm intelligent enough to know what the proper thing to do? What's the right thing to do? For what? To show that you care about your fellow man. Humans, not skin color, not what country you come from, not their educational level,
0: care about humans. That's important. Thank you. And Lee from Honolulu wrote, I am listening right now to the discussion about the re-airing of the interview with the Proud Boys Hawaii founder. I strongly support your re-airing of that interview. Thank you for standing up for content and context in the face of cancel culture that mistakenly thinks that hear no evil, see no evil, will protect us from evil. And if you have something you want to share about a guest or a topic on our show, please call our talk back line at 792-8217. Shared Hope International is a group whose mission is to eradicate sex trafficking. It recently released a 10-year report card comparing states across the country. So how does Hawaii stack up? The Conversations producer Harrison Patino spoke with Shared Hope International's Samantha Vardman. She begins by laying out the framework that states were graded on.
6: It's important to note that we have a legislative framework that contains 41 components of law against which we assess each state's laws. And that's how we derive the report cards for each state. There are six issue areas that the report card looks at and then elaborated out into 41 components of law. The six issue areas hit on each of the aspects that underlie response to child sex trafficking and without which you cannot have a comprehensive response. They include um, criminalization of domestic minor sex trafficking, Having the crime of sex trafficking in place and making sure that it includes all aspects of sex trafficking that relate to children as well as adults, but that also include the trafficker and the buyer. Those are the two perpetrators of sex trafficking, and a law that does not include both is not a comprehensive law. Criminal provisions for demand. Does the crime include the buying of sex with children? because that is a crime of sex trafficking. And then of course, criminal provisions for the traffickers themselves. But thirdly, there's a criminal provision for facilitators that's required. That's where we try to go after the people who are letting it happen, who are providing the setting in which it's happening. The fifth area that we looked at is really the largest and the hardest and it's protective provisions for the child victim. Seems like that would be a no brainer, you know, protect the child victim. The problem is society is still struggling to see these children as victims, and they still too often see them as bad kids and kids who are committing offenses of prostitution or other offenses that they're committing while being trafficked. So we are deeply engaged in working towards changing the perspective of society towards these child victims and ensuring that there are protective responses in place for them. The sixth area of the framework is criminal justice tools for investigation and prosecution. We have to provide training uh, for law enforcement to recognize and respond to human trafficking. We have to have laws that allow law enforcement to use the tools they need to um, to investigate these crimes and to gather the evidence necessary for successful prosecution.
7: How does Hawaii compare to the other
6: states on the list? This framework that we have been using to grade the states for 10 years has now been advanced. An advanced legislative framework was released publicly November of 2020. We are spending this year from November 2020 to November 2021 to grade every state against this state new advanced framework that is more comprehensive and a little tougher. So when we talk about how Hawaii compared to other states under the previous framework, the report card in 2019 that came out for each state, Hawaii received the grade of a C. That can be viewed in two ways. When we started the project, Hawaii received an F. So there was progress in 10 years. However, Hawaii is still significantly behind the majority of other states which have attained grades of A's and B's. And it's for this reason, because the majority of states have achieved A's and B's, that's why we created an advanced legislative framework to raise the bar and challenge the states once again to raise their grades to more fully respond to child and youth sex trafficking.
7: In what key ways is Hawaii behind other states?
6: Most importantly, Hawaii lags behind in the areas of criminal provisions for demand. There are some laws in place in Hawaii that make it a crime to buy sex with a minor, but they are not as severe um, criminal penalties as they would be if that crime were included as it should be in the crime Of sex trafficking so Hawaii has has continued to keep the buyer separate from the trafficker and that's in contradiction to the federal uh, human trafficking law as well as um, most of the states in the nation a buyer is committing an offense of sex trafficking when that buyer purchases sex with a minor and um, Hawaii's sex trafficking law does not include the buyer.
7: Do you think the data reflected in these report cards and this advanced legislative framework, is that going to serve as a wake-up call for this issue?
6: Well, it already has. These report cards have have already accomplished significant changes in the legislative structures at the state level. When we started this project 10 years ago, um, most of the nation, uh, more than half of the states received F. When we when we retired this framework in November and, and adopted a more stringent framework, um, the majority of the nation has the majority of states have A's and B's, um, and we've seen we've seen the curve over the ten years. We've seen it escalate um, in those states that really prioritized the issue and worked on it every single legislative session um that's where we saw the real progress uh tennessee washington louisiana they they made this issue a priority in every legislative session and they they kept adding strength to their framework resulting in them being the the best grades in the nation um other states did not do that hawaii frankly has not done that um There were some good changes made, particularly in 2016, when Hawaii became the last state in the nation to pass a sex trafficking law. And that really pushed Hawaii forward significantly from the F that it's had um, to the C that it has now.
7: Now, going forward, what are some of the biggest challenges you identify going ahead, raising the grade for Hawaii and for other states who have something of a lackluster grade in this regard?
6: The challenge going forward in Hawaii is really specifically twofold. One is Hawaii must begin to see the purchase of sex with children as the crime of sex trafficking. Once that happens, once spires are viewed as trafficking perpetrators, there are a number of children who will then be identified as trafficking victims. In the case where a buyer is not seen as perpetrating the trafficking crime the children who are the victims of that buyer are not viewed as trafficking victims once that gets corrected it really helps to um, bring those children within the protections that are afforded to child sex trafficking victims the second Part of that, of course, is that Hawaii, along with most of the nation, needs to work on the protective provisions for the child victims. And there there is the bulk of the work to be done going forward. And our and the Shared Hope Advanced Legislative Framework focuses very much on the protective responses to the victims of child and youth sex trafficking. Until we Start to really treat these children as um, survivors and victims, and give them the protections they need. Uh, we're losing them. You know, we're losing them back to the back to trafficking. We're losing them from becoming healthy adults, and that's where that work needs to be done. Hawaii last year in 2019 on the report card scored just 12 points out of 27.5 points that are available for the protective provisions for child victims. So that's going to be the challenge going forward.
7: I mean, do you see that challenge more as a facet of a legislative holdup or do you owe it more to a social misconception about the idea of sex trafficking in the first place?
6: It's a great question and it needs to be tackled simultaneously. There absolutely is a need for social um, change, a a cultural change in the way we view these children. We We need to stop attributing blame to them for what is happening to them. And that's a real thing. And that's across the board, across the world, frankly. Legislatively, we can help move that needle. We can help to make that change in in the social perspective of these children through law. And we've seen that time and again. Law can drive cultural norms. And we are hoping through this work to push the legislation that will help us also with the cultural awareness.
0: That was Samantha Bardman, Vice President of the Institute for Justice and Advocacy at Shared Hope International. She was talking with the Conversations Harrison Patino about Hawaii's progress tackling sex trafficking over the past 10 years. is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. Time now for this week's Manu Minute. University of Hawaii Hilo professor Patrick Hart introduces us to a very small, very rare Hawaiian honey creeper.
8: Akeke'e is a critically endangered Hawaiian honey creeper found only in the highest elevation forests of the Alakai Plateau on Kauai. They're about four inches long and greenish-yellow with a black mask around their eyes. Their bills are slightly crossed, which helps them grab insects and spiders from dense lico of ohia trees. Akeke'e are a poster bird for the detrimental effects of global warming on animals. They can die from the bite of a single disease-carrying mosquito, and as temperatures warm every year, these mosquitoes are invading their last high-elevation refuges. Recent research has shown that as their population has decreased through the years, their songs are changing too. In the 1970s, they sounded like this. And now they sound like this. Most likely because there are now fewer akekee that the young birds can learn their song from. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the biology department at UH Hilo.
0: From the mountains to the sea, Hawaii's birds can be heard in their native habitat. Take a moment to listen. Subscribe to the Manu Minute podcast, now available through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your RSS feed.
4: Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, a nonprofit devoted to conserving the unique flora and fauna of Hawaii Island. More about how to volunteer at Friends of Hakalau In
0: today's backyard quiz, we remembered one of Hawaii's premier artists. His paintings of historic scenes are said to be accurate, drawn down to the smallest detail, evoking many of the celebrated episodes of life in pre-contact Hawaii. His artistic visions found homes on over 400 canvases as well as U.S. and other postage stamps. Some of his best work shows Polynesian and Micronesian voyaging canoes, tall ships, and figures from native Hawaiian folklore. He became a founding member of the Polynesian Voyaging Society and the general designer and builder of the sailing canoe Hokulea. In 1984, Herb Connie was named a living treasure of Hawaii. And congratulations to Kenny Kato from Hilo. You got it right. If you have an idea for a quiz, please write to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Did you know that roughly 10% of Hawaii residents do not have internet in their homes? Families in low-income communities have reported that low credit scores make them ineligible to access free connectivity programs from telecom companies. High unemployment rates have led some families to choose paying for groceries and rent over home internet subscriptions. Brad Bennett is with the Kua'uli Digital Opportunities Initiative. It's a community network created to help underserved access computers. He spoke to producer Lillian Song about how it's helping to address shortfalls in rural communities with network and computer distributions.
9: When the pandemic really began and and schools started to get shut down, a small group of Omidyar fellows were having a discussion. And one of us, uh, Mahina Paishan Duarte, who's a community organizer here on Hawaii Island and also a fellow, got a bunch of us together and kind of started to look at the the shortage of computers in some of our more rural communities. You know, I think with the the way the pandemic's you know, escalated so quickly, a lot of students were stuck without computers for a while there. So we wanted to try and address that shortfall and make sure that kids had computers at home in order to access their online education. So coolly started having discussions mid February twenty twenty with that premise and um We gathered a hui together. It became a statewide hui, and we operate statewide.
10: So it's almost a year now. So I'm sure that in this process, you probably encountered different situations. And how has it morphed since the beginning in February? Yeah,
9: the initial thought for us was, you know, getting access to uh, Chromebooks uh, and you know really getting uh, portable laptop type devices uh, to students so they could use them at home. What we ran into, sort of immediately, was uh, Kind of, there's a global shortage of Chromebooks. You know, the supply chain is extremely stretched because everybody you know, other schools and, and people across the world are trying to access Chromebooks because they have to access services and education online. So the delivery timeframe got really stretched. So we wanted to be able to really be responsive to the community needs that we knew were out there. So we ended up partnering with a local nonprofit in Honolulu, Hawaiian Hope. And what Hawaiian Hope does is they take donated computers, they refurbish them, and they redistribute at a very cheap cost. So uh, as far as coolies work, we were able to connect uh, very generous donors to our cause, and we were able to obtain these refurbished desktop computers, provide them to community members directly at no cost to them.
10: How many machines were refurbished, and how many families were helped?
9: The initial distribution uh, was 100 machines on Hawaii Island. Since then, again, we've done distributions all over Hawaii Island. We've done distributions on Maui, Moloka'i, Lanai, Kaua'i, and Oahu, so we're touching every island. Uh, And so far, we have donated 450 computers, and we have another 100 coming online this month. One for a kupuna distribution in partnership with some of our Native Hawaiian civic clubs, and another 50 are going to families who are serviced by early childhood service providers uh, uh, in partnership with the Department of Health and the Early Childhood Action Strategy Group. You know, as we started doing distributions, we realized uh, real quickly that it wasn't just an issue with students, right? And the DOE also, you know, they acquired a whole bunch of devices. They began to get devices out to students. So we started to recognize that the need was also multi-generational. There was a huge population of Kupuna who you know, in the midst of the pandemic, it wasn't safe for them to go out or even if they're able to go out for doctor's appointments, to access government services, to access the digital economy, you know, to do shopping or whatever it is. So uh, we realized that the more technology we could get into their hands and hopefully help them access services online, it'd be a lot safer for them than going out in the midst of the pandemic and, and trying to figure out how not to get infected or, you know, how to social distance. Yeah. So I think being able to service them and, and really shift our model towards not just serving school-age students, but addressing the needs of kupuna and also addressing the needs of preschool-age students, you know, the eight students ages 0 to 3 and their families and how they receive services, I, I think really, really expanded our model and expanded our view of what the community's needs were.
10: Well, we know that with COVID that Digital equity was highlighted, and you have said it's not something that was because of the pandemic, not caused by it, but it certainly a light was shown on it. Can you speak to that?
9: Yeah, you know, my, my background was in education and not necessarily in the uh, delivery of technical services, but, you know, in coordinating this effort and working with with Kuo-Uli, our partners, working with the State Broadband Hui and our uh, State Broadband Officer Bert Lum, and partnering with groups like KS and, and other groups, we really started to, to see that it's not just a matter of hardware, right? It's a matter of digital equity across the board, meaning, you know, access to hardware. Um, we're looking at uh, access to broadband services. Um, you know, in, in a working group that, that I'm a part of, we're looking at digital equity as all of Hawaii's residents, to um, Kupuna, having the information technology capacity, that's needed to participate fully in our society, in the digital economy, and that includes, you know, civic, social, and cultural activities, employment, you know, because we're also looking at remote work opportunities, entrepreneurial opportunities, lifelong learning, you know, and access to essential government services.
10: With the ledge starting, I know people have said with COVID, now people do need to transition to the digital platform. And if your community is a little bit behind or say doesn't have the broadband capability that kind of leaves you out of the conversation there doesn't it
9: definitely and you know people talk about the new normal even when you know if you know god willing the pandemic you know we get that under control and you know covid is isn't as much of a, of an issue as it is now i really don't see all of our governmental services i don't see access to certain parts of government and society i don't see it going back to the previous situation. I think people are, are getting used to accessing services online. The convenience is there. But I think what we have to recognize is, you know, while those of us who are very comfortable with technology are able to to make that transition pretty seamlessly, there's a large group of people, or Kupuna are very young, or people without access to broadband services that have difficulty with that. And really knowing, uh, not just having the access to hardware, but providing the training and support where if they need to access a governmental service, they can do so. If they need to, you know, pay something online, they can do so safely, you know, and make sure that however they're doing it, you know, bank transfer, debit card, PayPal, whatever it is, that they're able to really do that and, and not put themselves or their, their finances at risk. Yeah.
10: So I know the donation drive covers the harbor part. So how are you guys training? How do the people in the community who need this, how are you providing the yeah. support?
9: Yeah, and, and that's the you know the biggest lesson we learned as part of Google is you know we're, we're not doing this alone. There's a large group of people out there who are trying to address this issue from many different places. You have governmental agencies who are trying to do it, private and public partners who are trying to do it. So there is a broadband HUI group that uh, was organized by... Uh, the state broadband officer, and, you know, at any given time, you can have between 80 to 200 people on this call, and everybody's focused on the concept of digital equity and really getting broadband services out to all of our communities because, you know, uh, broadband services right now, in my opinion, I'm not speaking for the group or or anybody else, but in my opinion, it's no longer just a privilege. I mean, you kind of need broadband services to access basic governmental services, especially in a time of pandemic. So um, you have a lot of people who are partnering together to provide access to infrastructure for you know, communities trying to stand up broadband services. You have groups like the Workforce Development Council who are trying to partner with the library system and partner with UH in trying to do some digital literacy training across the state and you know, through the state libraries or through uh, different partners. Yeah. So the more we can coordinate these efforts through groups like the broadband HUI through efforts like Kuo'uli and and others out there, you know, the better we can make sure we're addressing the issue among everybody and not just hitting the fortunate people who have access at this point.
10: So it does sound like you guys in your own communities networks are seeing the need and now you're reaching across to each other so that you're not just in silos, but collectively working together toward this goal.
9: Yes, yeah, exactly, and and the federal government is seeing it as well. Yeah, you know, with, with some of the COVID relief bills that are coming down, broadband access is is a part of those bills as well. So there is money coming down to various agencies to be able to try and address those issues, you know, in Hawaii and nationwide. I think the more we coordinate our efforts, and the more we realize that we're supporting each other, and hopefully not working at cross purposes or duplicating efforts, you know, the, the more efficiently we can use these funds that are available to really make a dent and and really start to affect how broadband services are seen as, uh, again, in my opinion, a right and not a privilege.
0: That was Brad Bennett, Network Coordinator for the Kua'uli Digital Opportunities Initiative. He was talking with producer Lillian Song. Uh, Interested in helping? Well, the group has partnered with Hawaiian Hope, and it has extended their Hard Way for the Holidays donation drive. It's running here on Oahu through February 15th. They're also looking for organizations who can assist in collecting and refurbishing computers on the neighbor islands. Find links at hawaiipublicradio.org.
4: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting the exhibition Kamran Samimi in Stillness, with works exploring ideas of space, time, and impermanence. HonoluluMuseum.org. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bike Marks Cafe, we'll find out about a Navy program called Tech Bridges. We'll learn how Tech Bridges aims to get local companies to help build technology solutions to support the Department of Defense as well as the commercial sector. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. We
0: do have to go now, but up tomorrow? Are we doing enough to protect our burial sites? Some think not got a story you'd like to share leave your feedback on talkback line 808-792-8217 post your comments on facebook at the conversation hpr or tweet us at hi conversation email works too. talkback at hawaii public radio.org you can find our archive shows online i'm Catherine Cruz. join us tomorrow for more of the conversation